Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Risen. It's based upon the lectionary readings for April 12th, 2020, Easter Sunday. Easter will feel different this year. If we were living in ordinary times, our celebrations this week would be communal, festive, and well-orchestrated. We'd wear our best clothes, sit in packed pews, and listen to trumpet fanfares. Some of us would gather before dawn to listen to the great stories of our faith. Some of us would process with the Alleluia banners we buried at the beginning of Lent. Some of us would share brunch together in our parish halls. Some of us would delight in watching our children hunt for Easter eggs on our church grounds. Whatever our traditions, we would enact them together, gathering as church families to celebrate the best and boldest news ever told. The tomb is empty. Death is undone. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. The news has not changed, but the world around us has. Or at least the pain that always racks our world has been freshly uncovered. This year, most of us will not gather in person on Easter. We will celebrate online as best we can or create Holy Week rituals within our own homes. But the fear, sorrow, numbness, and shock we feel in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic will stay with us. Infusing our worship experiences and maybe even mocking them. What does it mean, after all, to celebrate resurrection when people near and far are dying by the thousands? What good can it do to insist that the tomb is empty when body bags are in short supply, mortuaries are at capacity, and mourners can't gather to bury their dead? I don't know. I'll begin by saying that because it's the most honest thing I can say. I don't know. I'm scared. I'm grieving. I'm bewildered. I'm struggling. Yes, I believe with all my heart that Christ is risen and that his rising was and is radically consequential. But I'm still fumbling. There is so much I long to know, but don't. What feels possible now is to stay very close to the story. Not to everything pretty we've added to it over the millennia, but to the messy, chaotic, barely comprehensible Easter story itself. Scattered grave clothes confused running, timid peaks into empty tombs, tears and more tears, hope and uncertainty intertwined, faith waiting in the shadows for understanding. I've spent the past few days reading John's account of the resurrection story over and over again, hoping to internalize it. A few lines have stood out to me as especially relevant for these perilous days, so here they are while it was still dark. In John's version of the story, Mary Magdalene discovers the empty tomb before sunrise, while it is still dark. Frederick Beekner expands on this detail to comment on the darkness of the resurrection itself. He describes the first Easter morning as a time when it was hard to be sure what you were seeing. The Gospel tells us that the disciples stumbled around in the half-light on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, running here and there in their confusion. Were those really angels sitting in the unlit tomb? Were those misshapen shadows Jesus' grave clothes? The stranger lingering outside with the oddly familiar voice, was he a gardener 
or someone else. Early in the morning, while it is still dark. That's where Easter begins. It begins in the dark. Needless to say, this is frustrating. Why can't the promise of Easter come to us in blazing brightness, with unmistakable clarity? Why all this stumbling around in the darkness? Why so much occasion for bewilderment? Could it be that death is such an abyss, such a horror, such a violation, that only a mystery as profound as resurrection in the dark will suffice? Over these past few weeks, we have seen death magnified, death exceeding all boundaries we try to impose on it. Can we rest in our shiny religious certainties any longer, given the scope of these losses? Maybe we need mystery right now, mystery commensurate to the planet reeling in loss. Angels in murky places, a stranger's voice revealing the divine, transformations both inexplicable and uncontainable. Maybe we need God who dwells in light so bright and so unapproachable, he covers us in merciful darkness to protect our fragile sight. In my own life, clarity, hope, and healing tend to come when I'm willing to linger in hard, barren places, places where the usual platitudes fall flat, and all easy answers prove inadequate. Jesus comes in the darkness, and sometimes it takes a long time to recognize him. He doesn't look the way I expect him to look. He doesn't let me cling to my old ideas of him. He disappears again just as I grab hold of him. But he comes nevertheless, and he calls my name even when I'm lost in grief. And in that instant, I recognize both myself and him. There is so much about the resurrection that we don't know. What we do know, what we need to know, is that somehow in an ancient tomb on a starry night, God worked in secret to bring life out of death. Somehow, in the utter darkness, God saved the world. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand. This is an odd, almost throwaway line in the text, but I find great comfort in it. John's Gospel tells us that the beloved disciple entered the tomb after Peter, saw Jesus' linen wrappings lying in the place where a body should have been, and believed without understanding. Even though he'd been raised on the scriptures, he didn't yet comprehend their significance for his circumstances. Still, he believed. It's not clear from the text what he believed or how deeply. Did he believe that Jesus' body had been stolen? Did he embrace the possibility that Jesus was alive? Did he trust that God had vanquished death and vindicated his Messiah? We don't know. We only know that he saw and believed meaning he leaned into the truth of his experience, the evidence of his own eyes. He gave himself over without cynicism or despair to whatever faith was possible in the moment, and then he left the door open for his faith to deepen. He believed as he could, trusted as he could. No more, no less. I love very much that this text honors the gap between faith and understanding, because it's a gap I know too well. I believe, but I don't yet understand. I believe in the resurrection, but I don't understand death's ongoing cruelty. I believe that Jesus reigns, but I don't understand the elusive nature of his kingdom. I believe that all things will be well, but I don't understand why they're not all well now. St. Anselm of Canterbury's motto for the Christian life was, Faith Seeking Understanding. I like that. It invites me to begin right where I am. What have I experienced of Jesus so far? Can I hang on to the faith that is possible in light of my experience, incomplete though it is? 
Often it's only in retrospect, only as I look back at the gravesides of my life, that I see how faith has led to understanding. Poet R.S. Thomas describes the process this way in his poem, The Answer. There have been times when, after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind, and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded and in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. Why are you weeping? In our gospel story, both the angels and the gardener ask Mary why she's weeping. I'm drawn to this poignant, heart-rending question for two reasons. First, the question honors sorrow as a legitimate and faithful pathway to revelation. May Magdalene sees Jesus because she stays put in the place where her pain is. She stands and weeps, giving the grief, desolation, hopelessness, and agony of her circumstances their due. Peter and the beloved disciple leave when they see the empty tomb, but Mary stays, bewildered and bereft. She refuses to abandon what is real, even when what is real is unbearable. Second, the question suggests that God cares about our weeping. The question is offered to Mary two times in the story, giving her ample opportunity to express her pain. Why are you weeping? What is it that you have lost? What are you seeking? What has caused you to linger at this grave? What is breaking your heart? I'd be hard-pressed to find a better question for the time and place we find ourselves in this Easter. Why are you weeping? Are you weeping for someone who has died of the coronavirus? Are you weeping in fear that you or someone you love might contract it? Are you sad because you've lost your job? Are you grieving for the unemployed and uninsured? Are you in tears because the world has changed and your place in it feels newly uncertain or shaky? Are you grieving because your faith isn't sustaining you as wholly as you thought it would? Are you sad because you miss the weekly comforts of church, Eucharist, ritual, community? Are you crying because you're lonely? Are you weeping for your children or grandchildren who are inheriting a world so filled with pain? Why are you weeping? To ask this question and to answer it honestly is not faithless. It is truthful and it is loving and it is a place to begin. And loving truthfulness is God's signature. Do not hold on to me. I'll be honest, this line makes me wince and part of me wishes Jesus hadn't said it. Didn't it make all the sense in the world for Mary to hold on tight to Jesus? Who among us wouldn't cling if a loved one unexpectedly returned to us? Wasn't Mary simply expressing her love? I wonder if what Jesus cautioned her against in that seeming rebuke was not love, but possessiveness, insecurity, and fear, an unwillingness to let things change, an unwillingness to mature in her comprehension and her calling. I wonder if Jesus was saying, Mary, you are more than a disciple now. You are a witness, a preacher, an apostle to the apostles. Do not hold on to what you thought you knew about yourself and about me. Do not cling to the way things used to be. Loosen your grip on the past. Stop expecting life to be what it was before the cross and the grave. I am doing something new in the world. I am doing something new in you. Don't cling. Don't hold on. Grow. When the worst of the current pandemic is over, we, the church, will be strongly tempted to hold on in nostalgia and fear. To pretend that nothing has changed to cling to our old, most familiar practices and avoid asking hard, creative questions about our place 
and our relevance in a post-COVID world? Can we hear Jesus' painful but necessary words as words of wisdom, spoken in love? Do not hold on to me. Allow new life, risky and uncertain though it is, to spring forth. I have seen the Lord. The Easter story begins with tears and ends with proclamation. Having encountered Jesus, Mary runs to tell her friends the news. I have seen the Lord. She doesn't hesitate to bear witness to what she has seen and heard. Even though the context into which she brings her good news is rife with anxiety, exhaustion, trauma, and disbelief. We know from the other gospel accounts that the disciples don't believe Mary right away. But she knows what she has seen, and she won't allow the zeitgeist of doubt, cynicism, and incomprehension to blunt her proclamation. She insists on resurrection because the resurrection is so good, so essential, so life-saving, so true. She knows that the world needs to hear it, so she says it boldly, bravely, joyfully, without apology. The world still needs to hear it, especially now as death breeds down our necks, the future feels precarious, and all of our worst fears run wild. The grave is empty, this sorrow is not forever, and the same Jesus who conquered death is still here, with us and among us. So, where have you seen the Lord? What is your proclamation? Who will you tell? This week, as I was preparing to write this essay, I came across a 2004 Easter sermon from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. In his beautiful words about the ongoing significance of resurrection, I saw the Lord. I saw the radical nature of the Easter faith we profess during this season of illness and death. So I'll close by sharing his words. The goodness of the resurrection news is most evident for those who have lost people they love to any sort of incomprehensible evil. The tragedies of dementia, the apparent meaninglessness of accident, the horrors of violence or injustice. Think back for a moment to the days when death squads operated in countries like Argentina or El Salvador. The Christians there developed a very dramatic way of celebrating their faith, their hope, and their resistance. At the liturgy, someone would read out the names of those killed or disappeared, and for each name, someone would call out from the congregation, Presente, here. When the assemblies gathered before God, the lost are indeed Presente. When we pray during the Eucharist with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven, we say Presente, of all those the world, including us, would forget, and God remembers. With angels and archangels, with the butchered Rwandans of ten years ago and the butchered or brutalized Ugandan children of last week or yesterday, with the young woman dead on a mattress in King's Cross after an overdose and the childless widower with Alzheimer's, with the thief crucified alongside Jesus and all the thousands of other anonymous thieves crucified in Judea by an efficient imperial administration, with the whole company of heaven, those whom God receives in his mercy." And with Christ our Lord, the firstborn from the dead, by whose death our sinful forgetfulness and lukewarm love can be forgiven and kindled to life, who leaves no human soul in anonymity and oblivion, but gives to all the dignity of a name and a presence. He is risen. He is not here. He is present everywhere and to all. He is risen. Presente. Yes, Easter will feel different this year. But even now, angels accompany us in the darkness, faith remains possible, 
understanding will come. The voice of the risen Jesus calls us by name, and the God who destroyed death is ever able to turn our tears into joy. All is not lost. Remember, we have seen the Lord. For books this week, Dan reviews We Were Rich and We Didn't Know It, a memoir of my Irish boyhood by Tom Phelan. Tom Phelan, born in 1940, had just turned 50 when his first novel, In the Season of the Daisies, was accepted for publication, prompting one critic in Books Ireland to wonder, the most obvious question posed by a novelistic debut with as much resounding vigor as this is, where has Mr. Phelan been? Well, after ordination in 1965 at the age of 24, Phelan spent 11 years as a Catholic priest in England and New York. He says that he left that vocation totally disillusioned. The priesthood was followed by a master's degree at Seattle University, a move back east, and then work as a custodian in the Garden City, New York public school system for 20 years. Thank God one of his Seattle professors encouraged him to keep writing, for since the debut of Daisies, Phelan has published six other novels. And now comes this evocative memoir about growing up in a rural village called Mount Melek, County Laos, in Ireland. Phelan remembers the 52-acre family farm as marshy land beside the bog, which meant for a very hard way of life. At that time, there was no rural electrification, no telephone, no indoor plumbing. At night, he piled wet clothes on top of his bed to keep warm. But he also remembers life on the farm as a playground, and indeed, in these 34 vignettes, you can understand the riches of an impoverished childhood. Consider the kitchen, which is also the dining room, the children's playroom, the sitting room, the workroom, the place where turkeys and chickens were plucked and where new litters of pigs were kept warm in cardboard boxes, while Dad broke off their front teeth with pliers to prevent them from biting their mother's teats. Saturday night meant baths for Sunday church, including a rigorous hair combing to look for fleas. Church was a place of overwhelming beauty in an otherwise drab world. Everything beautiful and stupendous about the building seeped into my consciousness. The Catholics and Protestants never saw each other, and time as an altar boy was filled with joyous moments. Phelan's short chapters describe castrating pigs and cattle, horses mating, his mother selling her 80 turkeys a year that enabled them to splurge in a bag of coal for the fireplace, and a colorful cast of eccentric figures. This is a bygone way of life. Thank God a writer of Phelan's talent has captured it for us. For films this week, Dan reviews Peru, Tesoro Escondido. With a history of over a thousand years, the 76-minute documentary shows why Peru really is a hidden treasure. The Uruguayan filmmaker Luis Ara and his team spent eight months in the country in order to capture its cultural, geographical, and natural riches. The travelogue began on the Pacific coast near Lima, population 8 million, with surfing and marine life, sea turtles and humpback whales, then goes on to one of the driest places on Earth, the Nazca Desert with its mysterious and gigantic geoglyphs. In the Earth that depict animals, plants, and geometric shapes, created sometime between 500 BC and 500 AD. After a brief take on Peruvian culinary traditions, the film explores the Andes Mountains and the Amazonian rainforests, including the spectacular Machu Picchu, but also the Chachapoya culture, 3,000 meters above sea level, that flourished 300 years before the Incans. This film might be a bit dramatic with its inspirational soundtrack and breathless narration, but it still made me want to go to Peru. 
I watched this movie on Netflix in Spanish with English subtitles. And lastly, for poetry this week, Coming to a City Near You by Carol Penner. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Jesus comes to the gate, to the synagogue, to houses prepared for wedding parties, to the pools where people wait to be healed, to the temple where lambs are sold, to gardens, beautiful in the moonlight. He comes to the governor's palace. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, to new subdivisions and trailer parks, to penthouses and basement apartments, to the factory, the hospital, and the cineplex, to the big box outlet center and to churches, with the same old, same old message, unchanged from the beginning of time. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, with his good news and hope erupts. Joy springs forth, the very stones cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds jostle and push, they can't get close enough. People running alongside, flinging down their coats before him. Jesus, the parade marshal, waving, smiling, the paparazzi, elbow for room, looking for that perfect picture for the headline, the man who would be king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, and gets the red carpet treatment. Children waving real palm branches from the florist, silk palm branches from Walmart, palms made from green construction paper, hosannas ringing in churches, chapels, cathedrals, and monasteries, basilicas, and tent meetings, King Jesus honored in a thousand hymns in Canada, Cameroon, Calcutta, and Canberra. We love this great, big, powerful, capital K, King Jesus, coming in glory and splendor and majesty and awe and power and might. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. King Lee, he takes a towel and washes feet. With majesty, he serves bread and wine. With honor, he prays all night. With power, he puts on chains. Jesus, king of all creation, appears in state. In the eyes of the prisoner, the AIDS orphan, the crack addict, asking for one cup of cold water, one coat shared with someone who has none, one heart, yours and a second mile. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Can you see him? Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 12th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.